0: Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would make this effective in our ears, that you would grant us understanding. And we ask you, Lord, to have this be your word uh, preached this day. Uh, Please uh, protect uh, these people from error. Uh, I pray, Lord, that even if I speak it, they would not hear it. We thank you for all of your many blessings. In Christ's name. When I was uh, very young, I guess now it seems very young, I was 11. Now, when I was 11, I probably had a lot more freedom than you 11 year olds. I mean, when I was 11, I would just take off with my buddy and we would go bicycling all over the place. I lived out in the country and we would disappear probably before my folks were up in the morning and we wouldn't come home sometimes until it was dark. So I had an awful lot of freedom. And with that freedom, sometimes I was bad. Not as bad as my friend, but I was bad. <laughs> but this is a story where he was worse than me, and so that's why I mentioned that. <laughs> I was down at the lake with my friend, my best friend Bill. He was older than me, a bad influence on me. And uh, we were riding together. I, I don't know. It was probably a Saturday because uh, we had a... A man stopped and asked us for directions, and he was with his family. And like I said, we were down at the lake, which is about a mile down the road from my house, and I lived about a mile uh, north of the town square. But all of it was going uphill. You had to go uphill south to get to the town square. And uh, this man stopped, and we were on our bicycles, and he said, can you tell me how to get to Valley View department store? And now Valley View is the biggest department store in probably a 75-mile radius And so people came from all over the place to go to this store. And, of course, my friend and I knew where this store was. I started telling him. I started telling him to continue on this road up here. And then my buddy said, no, no, no. It's in that direction. He pointed back to the north. I mean, total wrong direction. And I look at my buddy like, what, are you retarded or something? I mean, you know it's... uh, And then it dawned on me, he's trying to be a liar, deceiver to this man. And I felt bad for this man. And I'm trying to explain to this man to trust me. Don't listen to my friend. I can tell you where. So then my friend Bill started talking louder. He started getting belligerent. That man, I could see, he was getting very frustrated with us very quickly. And so he just drove off. Now, I don't know what had happened in that car a couple minutes to him stopping and asking me for directions and my buddy. It could have been they'd been lost for a long time. It could have been that his his wife had been urging him to pull over and ask directions. I don't know. That's possible. But I know what was happening after he'd stopped to ask for directions if his wife had been urging him to stop. He's probably looking at her. See, see, you tell me to stop for directions and this is what we get. So... I learned a couple things that day. For once, I learned that my friend was much more evil than me. And that remained the same. I mean, I mean, we were best buddies at that time. We were best buddies for probably another year or two. But I stopped running around with him because he was going to get me into much more trouble than I was wanting to get into. I got, enough, I got in enough trouble with myself. But this is all about directions, about getting directions, trusting directions. A few years ago... My family gave me a gift, and I forget if it was her father's day or my birthday, and it was actually two gifts, but they said the same thing, and it said, ask for no directions, or I'm sorry, uh, ask no directions, read no instructions, for this is the way of the dad. (laughs) I like that. I got a mug that says it, and I got a t-shirt that says it. And they would say that that's true of me, I think. I am stereotypical in that regard. I'm very loath to ask directions. And I don't care how diligently I read instructions, I seem to always put the first thing together wrong. The first few things that I'm assembling, I get to a point and I think, hmm, the holes are supposed to be on this side and they're on this side. I need to take all these out and put them back together. And so I do read directions, but typically only after I'm lost, sufficiently confused to where I need them. Until then, I think they should just be simple enough to where I can do it without the need of them. So we have directions here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now, to trust someone is to rely upon them. It's to have confidence in them, what they're saying to you. You come to depend on people that you trust. That's a trusted relationship that you have. But there is a lot that scripture tells us not to trust. Deuteronomy twenty-eight fifty-two: we are not to trust our high and fortified walls. In Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 49.6 warns of those who trust in their wealth and boast in their riches. These first three that I found, really, I think epitomize modern-day America. High and fortified walls, and we have those. We have the Atlantic and Pacific that are high and fortified walls. Some trust in chariots and horses. We have weapons. We have weapons. And we have wealth and riches. And so it is understandable that this could easily be written to modern America. Do not trust in oppression or vainly hope in robbery. That's from Psalm 62.10. Psalm 115.8 says we're not to trust in idols or we will become like them. Do not put confidence in man or princes. That's from Psalm 118. He who trusts in his riches will fall. Proverbs 11.28 He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. That's from Proverbs 28, 26. Isaiah warns against trusting in carved images, in wickedness, in empty words. Jeremiah warns of trusting in allies, in fortified cities, in lying words, in brothers. Scripture tells us to not trust an awful lot, but lest you believe that the only thing we're supposed to trust is Scripture and God, there is a reference I want to share with you. Proverbs 31. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. So God does expect us to trust not only him, but to trust our spouses. And so, obviously, this trust between a man and a woman is so deep, it is so uh, intimate, that it is when that trust is betrayed that causes couples to have such horrific problems. It is hard to regain that trust. And it is not like forgiveness. I talked about that a couple of years ago. Trust must be regained in that situation. Sure, you can be forgiven, but it may be a long time before you are given the same trust that you had had. That man that I misled or that my buddy misled, it was him. It wasn't me. I'm not mixing up my story. But that man lost his trust at least in teenage boys. Well, we weren't teenagers at the time. So he lost his trust in adolescent boys even. But yet that is a trust that is hard to regain. We are to trust God Trust God. Why? Why does Scripture command us to trust God? Because He is the only person that is ultimately and totally trustworthy. Everybody else will disappoint, including husbands and wives. Yes, we're to trust our husbands and our wives, but they will disappoint us. They will perhaps at times betray that trust. I remember something happened with my sister a few years ago after my dad died. And I felt she'd betrayed my trust. I held her accountable to it, and she just totally blew it off. I was really surprised. I had confided something in her, and she had then just basically told the people my concerns. And she felt that that was warranted. And I never trusted her like that again. It's been 11 years, 12 years. I don't think I ever will trust her again like that. Not with something that's close that could be that hurtful to other people what i'd shared with her i'd shared with her in confidence so trust in the lord with all your heart trust in the lord with all your heart all your heart occurs quite a bit in scripture and actually the first occurrence is in Deuteronomy 4:29 and this is moses prophesying of a time when the jews will abandon god and he gives them instructions as to how to get back into god's favor and this is what he says You will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. That phrase, all your heart and all your soul, is used seven more times in Deuteronomy alone. It is a common phrase, and it's referring to all of your heart, all of your soul. It's who you are. In the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And so strength is added in the Shema for whatever reason. Then in the Gospels, when Jesus quotes from the Shema, he adds a phrase, all your mind. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Heart, soul, mind, strength. What does that mean? They are unique. They're different. What does it mean when we are loving someone with all of our heart? What is the heart? Proverbs 4.23 describes the heart as the wellspring of life. And another verse says that out of the fullness of the heart flow the words of the mouth. So as our hearts grow cold towards God and His Word, towards righteousness... Our words will reflect that. They become less righteous. If you have a problem controlling your words, it didn't begin with control of your words. It began with protection of the heart, with controlling what's in there. It's not that you have a problem with what's coming out. What's coming out is natural. God's made us that way. The problem is what you've allowed in, what is festering in your heart. The soul, with all of our soul, The soul of the seat of our emotions, our affections, our greatest desires. All of our mind, our our intellect, our will, our goals and our plans. And then our strength. And what is your strength? It's you. It's you as a human. It's you as someone who is capable of doing something on this earth. All of your energy. And so all of these things really roll together into one. To describing you and all that you are. And all of your heart sums that all up. It's a way of referring to all of that without any of those other words. So when Solomon tells us to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts, he's considering all of that. Your plans, your desires, your goals, your emotions, your energy, your health. All of those things are part of it. What do you set your affection on? What intrigues you as a person? What intellectually stimulates you and challenges you? God wants all of that to be redeemed for his glory, and it is included in all of your heart. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, affirmation, and lean not on your own understanding, denial. Scripture is filled with this. Proverbs especially is filled with this. This is how most of the Proverbs is structured. Do, don't. Don't, do. Do, don't. And you just give all these illustrations of these things. Proverbs 28, 26 says, and I quoted it earlier, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Now, what does this mean? Because I've already said that this... Concept of your heart is a word, a simple word, that conveys all of you. It's all of who you are. It's what makes you you. And so what does it mean when Solomon says that you who trust in that and trust in all of you, you're a fool? I said that was 2826. That was 2826A, the first sentence. Let's read the second sentence. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. So now you can see what's being contrasted. What's being contrasted is someone who is trusting only in himself, doing what he wants, basically, and another person that is walking wisely. And we know how wisdom is defined. Wisdom is defined as conformity to God's word. So our hearts are contrasted with conformity to God's word. So it's assumed by the writer of Proverbs, by Solomon, that our hearts are not sufficient to be our guides because they're not wise. In and of themselves, they're not wise. There's another verse that I'm sure you're all familiar with. I, I, uh, the specific references often elude me, but the verses stick in my head. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will drive it far from him. But can a rod successfully drive out all foolishness? And note that it doesn't say it destroys foolishness. It just says it drives it out. It goes out, it comes back in. It goes out, it comes back in. Right? We know that. We've seen it in our children. We've seen it in ourselves. Much of foolishness in Proverbs is not speaking about kids. It's speaking about adults. So we know that foolishness is not so easily handled. Yes, we want to discipline our kids. But good discipline will only get them so far. They must seize the word for themselves. To the degree that they do not, foolishness is going to go right back into their hearts. Now, and lean not on your own understanding is a caution. Lean not on your own understanding. Just as this proverb about trusting in his own heart is a fool, it's a caution. It's not an absolute truth saying that all of you all and me have nothing but foolishness in our hearts. That's not what it's saying. But it's saying what is the standard of wisdom versus what is the standard standard of foolishness? We are closer to the standard of foolishness in our natural fallen state. It takes work to get God's standard driving out the foolishness that fills our hearts. You see, we take that rod and we apply it to children, right? And that's what the Bible says. But that rod should be applied to all of us because we all have foolishness in our hearts. We all allow it in. If we're not guarding it, we're allowing it in. And what is the rod for the adults? If you don't don't apply the rod to yourselves, God will apply it to you. He will apply it to us. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read Psalms or listen to Psalms, I almost dread getting to Psalm 119. It's just too big. I like reading Psalms in bite-sized chunks. Some of them are almost too short. You know, two verses... (laughs) Wait a minute, did I hear that psalm? Rewind. Did I hear it? You know, there's so few words that you don't even think that you've absorbed the whole psalm. To me, the best psalms are the ones that are about maybe 12 to 24 or 25 verses. I really like those. You have enough time to kind of focus on them, get the meaning, get the meat out of them, and then they're over. They end at a good pace. But for me, when I get to Psalm 119, it's just, oh, it's like I'm climbing a mountain. I don't want to get out of my car between tracks. So I'll sit there and I'll listen. You know how long that is? It's 17 minutes long when I listen to it. I mean, I could sit in my car a long time if it just started. So I take it to the beginning and I stop it, and then I'll listen to it when I come back and either go to work or come back. But I don't think I have a good attitude towards Psalm 119. I I think you should agree. Now, you have to understand, uh, Psalm 119 consists of 176 verses, 22 Hebrew letters in the alphabetical order, and they each have eight verses. Boom, 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 boom. 176, 22 times eight. So see, I should think in terms of them in smaller bite-sized chunks. And it's all about the law. I don't know if any of you have ever done research on the presidents, but there are many presidents who memorized Psalm 119. 176 verses. Various of our presidents memorized that. It was standard for them in their youth. I don't know anybody that's memorized Psalm 119. I haven't. Now, I know that we shouldn't brag about this, but, I mean, if you've memorized Psalm 119, you don't have to raise your hand, but you are my hero. Now, I wanted to share something about Psalm 119 now. Ten times, Psalm 119 tells us that understanding comes from God. Now, I just said, and lean not on your own understanding. Psalm 119 clearly states 10 times that understanding comes from God. And you would think, okay, it's through study, it's through this or that. A couple of them are that. But really, it just says understanding comes from God. So, see, we equate it with reading. We think if we read, read, read diligently, listen, 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 it'll come to us. Not necessarily. That isn't the way God works. There are unbelievers that probably read and read and read and study this, and they don't get it. They're not getting wise. Many of them are getting foolish. As a matter of fact, Dr. Eidsmo pointed out some of them that have the whole controversy, they they deprecate Scripture, they, they slice and dice it all up. They are not benefiting from God's Word. They are probably going to be rebuked for what they're doing to God's Word. They'll be held much more accountable for what they're doing than just the average atheist. Because they are taking God's word and attempting to destroy it, to prevent people from benefiting from it, from being changed by it. Understanding is mysterious. Understanding is God's gift to his children. So see, God can take our understanding away from us just like this. Draw it out of your head, just like those thoughts in in the uh, the Harry Potter series. They can draw thoughts out of people's heads and put them in this little vat and share them with people. It's a cool concept. But yet that's how God can see us. That's how he can put stuff into our head or get stuff out of our head. We are so proud of our intellects. We are so proud of what we know. And yet God can take it away like that. It is not ours. It is on loan. And so we should have humility with all of the gifts God has given us. Intelligence, understanding, skill even. Even skill, the memory skill you have in your bodies could be lost very, very quickly. So now we are born with what you could consider just a blank canvas. And then we paint onto that canvas all of our wisdom, all of our understanding. And for many of us, We probably don't approach even getting beyond stick figures and crayon drawings. God has a masterpiece that is there that would reflect properly all of a proper understanding of this world, of him, of everything. We, of course, will never have that. We'll never own that masterpiece. That's God's alone. And yet he gives us this responsibility in life to look at the masterpiece as best we can see it, and replicate it in our lives. And then we kind of carry it around with us, you know. And I mean, it's, it's, it's our cross, let's say. It's our cross to bear. No, it's us. It's who we are. It's who God has made you to be, and it's who your parents have helped you make you to be. It's every illustration that you've heard. It's everything that you've endured. All of this makes you, you, makes you unique. Flaws and all. And that's who we are. And yet so much of it is still mysterious because we don't understand this brain. We don't understand how God connects this brain to this soul and spirit, to the will drives us. We describe it as being in the brain, but we know it's not in the brain. It's in the person. And that person is not just chemicals. That person consists of body and spirit. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. There is a verse, every good and perfect gift comes down to us from the Father of lights. And yet, I'll bet most of us think of those gifts outwardly. We think of those gifts. Now, we might think of salvation as a gift that comes down to us. But yet, I don't think we think of the things that we take for granted every day. The things like our intellect, our understanding. These little things that make us unique. Are we truly thankful for these things that God has given us, the things has made us different in? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. This is the second occurrence of the word all, by the way, in our text. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways acknowledge him. So two alls. Alls are important. Alls are telling you something. They're telegraphing importance to you. And so we are to trust him with all our heart, all our being, whoever we are, and we're to acknowledge him in all our ways. Now, the two are corollaries. Trust is a corollary to acknowledge, right? And heart is a corollary to ways, So, trust and acknowledge. If you were to pick one of those words as being more important than the other, is it more important or is it more substantive, more effectual, that you trust someone or that you acknowledge someone? I think we tend to think trust is more important. It just seems more important. To acknowledge someone seems almost unimportant. And yet, people are offended by not being acknowledged. If you can think of stories, maybe books you've read or or shows you've watched, you can imagine a scenario where someone comes in and says, I walked into that room and she didn't even acknowledge I existed. People are very offended by not being acknowledged. And so acknowledgement is important. It's important to us and yet we overlook it And it is important to God. God expects to be acknowledged for who he is and for what he does in your life. And yet, do we? Do we truly acknowledge him? There's another difference. Trust is something that really can be invisible to other people, right? I can trust Trevor, and no one would know that. It's a private thing. It's a secret thing. But if I acknowledge Trevor, that he's a great nuclear engineer, hey, everybody sees that. It's very public. And see, that's what acknowledgement, that's a way that it differs from trust. I can trust God, but to acknowledge God in all of our ways is different. That is to identify with him, to be identified with him. And perhaps in bad company, in company that doesn't have truck with God, that doesn't like people talking about God, especially in our day, talking about God, the Son, otherwise known as Jesus, the Christ. We could talk all you want about God these days, but try to bring Jesus into it, and it's a different story because people tolerate talk of God, but they are really very intolerant of talk of Jesus. So what does it mean? In all your ways, acknowledge him. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Again, all your ways is a corollary of that heart. It's all of you. And now we're talking about outward. So see, all of us, I don't care how shy you are. I don't care how young you are. You are developing a sphere of acquaintances, a network of people that you know, that is unique to you. As much as we overlap with Facebook friends, I'm always amazed at how many other people people have on their Facebook list. Even my kids. My kids have all these other people on their Facebook list that I don't know. I mean, we are all like that. We meet all these people. Do we acknowledge God in all of our ways? All of the many ways in which we interact with other people? That's what God wants. And now there's one word here that I think it's too easy for us to overlook. In all your ways acknowledge Him. In all your ways ways. God is not asking you to do anything stupendous or wonderful. This is not about something that is outside of your natural character. He just wants you to acknowledge God in your ways, all of your ways. You're unique, like we said. And so you must acknowledge God in all of your ways. That is obedience to this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And now what is it that we get? What is the next phrase? And he shall direct your paths. How valuable is it that God directs our paths? You know, I think as a Calvinist, many of us are prone to think This is not that valuable. God directs us anyway. We know he's sovereign. He directs us. Not a hair falls from my head that God doesn't know it. Not a sparrow drops from the sky that he didn't do it. God, of course, he directs me. But what does that mean? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and then he shall direct your paths. What if I don't do those former things? What if I don't trust God with all my heart? What if I don't acknowledge him in all my ways? What if I do lean on him with my own understanding? He then doesn't direct me. Is that important that he's not directing me? Or is it not? Because as a Calvinist, I can just think, well, you know, God's directing me, sure he is. I don't care how disobedient I am. I don't care how lazy I am in my spiritual walk. Of course God's guiding me. He's leading me. I'm confident of that. You see, we have this intellectual understanding of faith in God and Scripture that eviscerates the truth. It's really crazy. And and I'm not saying... I mean, you might not personally believe this, but I know there are some in here that do believe this. This is the way they live their life, and that is who I'm talking to. You can't live like that. It's not right. So now, Romans 8.28, however, says this, And we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so, see, let's pit these two against one another, right? I mean, these must make sense. We're not like that liberal guy that uh, Dr. Ismo talked about. We know that Scripture reconciles Scripture. So what does it mean when we say here that we've got to pretty much do these various things to be guided by God, and yet here Romans 8.28 says I'm getting it for free. Why do I have to pay for something that I'm getting for free? Right? The heart of economics. This is an economics question. Why should I worry about trusting God, about not leaning on my own understanding, about acknowledging Him in all of His ways? if I'm just going to be guided anyway? It's important to ask ourselves these questions. Proverbs is Solomon giving practical advice. And what is this practical advice? He says, follow this advice, and you will be guided by God. We need to value that. Because when we just go about our days not trusting with God, not trusting God, leaning on our own understanding we will not be guided by God. And there are many of us that day to day are not guided by God. We must admit this in order to fix it, in order to resolve it. Proverbs is giving practical advice. Follow this advice, Solomon says, and you will be guided by God. Romans, on the other hand, is a letter Paul wrote to people who were being persecuted for their faith. And they are wondering whether what they're going through has any meaning is of any value to anybody. And what he is assuring them is that, yes, it has value. He gives them hope, and he gives them meaning with Romans 8. It's beautiful. We all love it, as rightfully we should. Yet it's two different things that are being spoken of. Proverbs says, God can steer you around so much headache and heartache in this life, if only you will obey him. If only you will trust Him. Whereas what's happening in Romans is it says, the headache and the heartache that you're experiencing might not even be your fault. But yet there's purpose in it. There's meaning in it. There's purpose and meaning in everything. So see, it's two totally different statements. And yet when you really look at the surface of them, you can think, hey, these appear to be in conflict. Why is it that I have to trust God, not trust myself, Acknowledge God, and then, only then, he'll guide me. And what is he guiding you? What does a guide do? They keep you out of trouble. They keep you from getting lost. They keep you from running off and getting stuck like that fellow got stuck in the rock 127 hours, and then he whacked off his arm. God as a guide is the best thing that you could ever depend upon in this life, and he promises he'll do it. But do we take him at his word? Do we sense the value of that proposition? I don't know that we all do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Now, I say it in the King James fashion. I can't get this. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Be not wise in your own eyes is how I remembered it long ago. Let me just give you some verses. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. And depart from evil. You can't swing a cat in Scripture without hitting the phrase, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Admonitions to fear God are probably one of the most prevalent in Scripture. They are as common as salt is in our diet. I remember years ago, we had a meal at home. It was wonderful. I love this meal. And we were going to have the Kaisers over in in like a week. And I'm like, Tabitha, let's make that meal. And so we made that meal. And we sat down and ate with the Kaisers. And it was very bland. It was very different. And then Tabitha said, I forgot to put the salt in. And so we went from a meal that was wonderful a few days before with the proper amount of salt to one without salt that really tasted pretty lame. And see, that occurred in a few days. Most of the time, when salt is leaching out of our lives, leaching out of our walks with God, it leaches out day at a time, week at a time, month at a time. And so we don't notice it. Others might not even notice it that we're in constant contact with. But eventually it becomes very noticeable. And then you know someone is ignoring God. Someone isn't bothering to walk with God or talk with God. And that is the fruit of it you see that they lack salt in their life. You see that they are tasteless. They have no love of God. It's not coming through. You don't see it. And, and uh, in our text from John, uh, Gary just mentioned that. There is an if in the clause that Gary read to us that is very important. We will only abide in Christ if we obey Him, if we follow Him. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Let me read to you uh, 2 Timothy 3, five verses there. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. This is an admonition Paul gives to Timothy in this second epistle. Timothy is now leading this church, and Paul is giving him wisdom. Now, as a young believer, I was premillennial In my beliefs. And when I read this and I saw, but now this, that in the last days, last days, I'm all ears. In the last days. And then you read this, and for me, a young Christian, I'm like, oh yeah, this is us. This is us. This is America. That's the only proof I needed to know that premillennialism was true. So I saw the truth in that day. But see, the reality is that truth is in many, many cultures and has been for a long time. It ebbs and flows, but you'll always have these people. Now, what makes me sad now as I read these things is not that I see this in our culture, but I see a lot of this in me, boasters, proud, unthankful, unloving, unforgiving, I see a lot of that in me. But you know Paul is writing this concerning people who are not in the church. And that's why he's telling Timothy from such people turn away. Later, a few verses on, you see that he's speaking specifically of unbelief. And yet, the conduct that identifies unbelievers is often in us. And these are indicators that our hearts aren't entirely right with God. Now, we can't expect perfect conduct. We know that. We'll we'll not be perfect. And yet, when I see a person with great humility, and I've met some, and when you read about Moses, Scripture describes him as the most humble man on earth. That's amazing. It's just amazing to think that he, being the most humble man on earth, is who God made to do what he did. And yet... It makes sense, because with anybody else that has even this much less humility, it just goes to our heads. Power just makes us mad. We become so bloated in our self-esteem. And so then this ends, it will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Now, this is metaphorical. This is not just speaking of your flesh and bones. This is speaking of you as a person. This is speaking of you, all of you. This will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. I want to close with actually a verse from Isaiah 15. Uh, from Isaiah verse 15, uh, 57, 15 reads, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. This is how God describes himself. But listen to how God describes himself here. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. All of that is about holiness. None of that is about humility. God needs no humility. And yet, in Jesus, we had someone exhibit greater humility than Moses. And so, see, God, though he need exercise no humility, exercised the greatest humility for us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths Let's do those first three and let's seek to have that last one. It's important. We don't just get it because we're Calvinists. We get it by trusting God and by setting aside trust of ourselves. So let's work for God. Let's work for holiness. We know that He works in us, but yet we know that our sinful flesh is also very, very lazy. We know that Paul said that he buffeted his body to make it his slave. We can do no less. I love Paul. What a godly man. I mean, he he could stand before people and say, I have no regrets. I have done all that I can for you. And essentially he's saying, I have not failed you in any way. I mean, Paul could say that because he had so sold out to God that he so selflessly served people that he had no regrets about this. It's just amazing that any person could share that. But yet he did. And so we know that we have a standard to aspire to. We cannot be lazy in our sanctification. We must humble ourselves and seek God. Father, we thank you for your love. And, Lord, you are so patient with us. We can be so unlovely. We can be filled with ungodly characteristics like Paul uh, described to Timothy in this letter. And yet, Lord, you have poured out your love and your forgiveness and your mercy upon us. And so we pray, Father, that you would have us to be and become more and more thankful to truly understand the great gift you've given. We pray, Lord, that you would humble us that you would draw us close to yourself and that you would grant us a closer walk with you and that you would direct our paths as we ask and as you promised. In Christ's name we pray, amen.